Welcome to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. This weekend I attended the Zurich Film Festival. One of the films I watched was Midnight Family, the, du the new documentary by Luke Lawrenson. The film chronicles the Ochoa family life running a private ambulance in Mexico City. It is a really interesting and powerful film. In this conversation we talked to Luke uh, about how he got into filmmaking, his previous projects, and we discussed his latest film. We do, try to we do try to stay away from spoilers, but we did go into some details, so proceed at your own risk. Hope you enjoy the episode and the film. Listen in. here with Luke, who just presented his film at the Zurich Film Festival, Midnight Family. Luke, thank you for accepting my invitation. Yes, of course. Thank you for, for having me and for coming to see the film. Well, uh, it's a great, powerful film, uh, and I really want to talk a bit more about it in detail. But uh, before I do that, I just want to hear a bit about yourself. Uh, did you always want to be a filmmaker? I started making films when I was really young, uh, about... 10 or 12 years old were some of the first times that I played with cameras. I was a really big skateboarder and through that was making skateboarding films with my friends and that grew into uh, falling in love with, with documentaries. I, when I went to college I didn't think I was going to go to study film and I actually ended up doing art history but along the way was always making films and have continued to to make that my life. And it was always documentaries. You felt attracted to documentaries. Yeah, I, I think um, there was this feeling that documentaries were films that I could just kind of go make on my own. I, I was a little bit too impatient to wait around for funding or a crew or even the right script. Um, and I wanted to just go make films and documentaries kind of gave me that um, possibility. So you always wanted to do documentaries and there were some documentaries that inspired you while you were growing up? Yeah, there were. Um, I think the films that really made documentary filmmaking interesting to me were uh, some of the first cinematic documentaries that I saw. So directors like Viktor Kosakowski or Michael Glawager um, were they're rather niche in a way, but they were documentary filmmakers that were really making these cinematic experiences for people. They weren't using interviews, they weren't doing journalism, they were making works of art, and that really interested me. They, they, I'd never seen films like that before. Then that, that happened when I was about um, 20 years old and really kind of changed the way I, I thought about filmmaking. I, do, I can see your influences because your last uh, film, it's pretty cinematic. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, well, we live in a time right now where accessing... I've always loved, loved documentaries, but they were not always accessible. Yeah. Now with uh, mediums like Netflix and these, are, they're everywhere. And I actually think that this has helped the documentary filmmakers to put their works out there. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole conversation just to be had about how films get distributed today, and I think 
in some ways, yes, films are as accessible as they've, they've ever been just because of the internet. Um, but there are downsides as well. <laughs> uh, there are incredibly powerful companies that are making the decisions. And so it, it, there's a flip side to all of it. But yes, I think, I think you're right in that um, films are able to reach a much broader audience than they ever were just because of the internet. Also, I think that it has been helpful in educating the audiences because, for example, I, I have some difficulties showing some documentaries to my friends. Mm -hmm. They're not always like open to idea of watching a documentary. Hmm. And I think that Netflix has changed that because they're like... I think that's a, true. I think that's true. I, uh, I think the popular interest in nonfiction filmmaking has drastically changed in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, Netflix being a company that has invested in fun or thrilling documentaries that people have watched in enormous numbers, even something like Making a Murderer or um, Wild Wild Country are like big hits yeah. and they are documentary films. Um, so that has been really exciting to see and I'm kind of building on that with my own career of trying to uh, make films that can reach big audiences as well. Uh, well, talking about Netflix, I saw that you were involved with uh, Last Chance You. Yeah. Uh, I haven't watched uh, the whole series, but I, I did watch a couple of episodes. And okay. I did. <laughs> well, I, I find it really interesting. Yeah. And I see kind of a thread going in your, in your interest. Uh -huh. There's uh, stories about people living like on the fringes trying to make the best out of yeah. whatever was given to them and is that a, is that a consci conscious choice? Um, in a way it is and in a way it's not. I, I think the types of films that I like to make follow people as they experience challenges and as they work towards some sort of goal. Um, and in all of my work or in most of my work, not all of it, that has been the central idea. Last Chance You follows junior college football players that are trying to get back on their feet. Midnight Family follows a family trying to make a living in this world of for-profit healthcare. Um, so I, I think just as an observational filmmaker, those sorts of stories are really fertile for um, the, you know, types of things that I, I, I'm interested in, but... But even in your other films, like, uh, I mean, I, I watched the, the short film, Santa, okay. Santa yeah. Cruz del Islote. Cool. It's also about uh, these fishermen who are living on a little island, and yeah. their reality because of overfishing and many other yeah. factors is making their life yeah. more difficult. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I, I, I'm hesitant to say that that is kind of the only, or not the only, but one of the main connecting f factors because I, when I find a story that interests me, it, it's something much less tangible that brings me in. It's just a feeling that this is fascinating to me and I think it can be interesting to other people. Um, and it doesn't have to be about people on the fringes. It doesn't have to be about people trying to make a living. Um, but in everyday life, 
some of the biggest stakes that you can find are, can you survive? Yeah. Um, so. Well, in that sense, I think that uh, I, I didn't watch it. I just watched the the trailer, uh, the other film. Yeah, New York, New York Cuts. Cuts. Yeah. I think that's that's a bit uh, different. That's yeah. like uh, it tries to show. Uh, I, this is my how I perceive it. It tries to show like a microcosm of like these little. Yeah. Uh, shops that reflect the reality of the community around us. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I, I, in this, uh, from the trailer, was the camera static most of the times? Yeah. In, in New York Cuts, the idea was to go to. Um, I went to like five or six hundred different hair salons in New York City, and picked six that I felt brought the viewer to these really different communities. So these were people that were paying sometimes four dollars for a haircut or sometimes $1,500 for a haircut. <laughs> and I just filmed with a static locked-off camera the whole haircut and the conversation that, that was had. And it was almost like a, you know, a therapy session for some people where you got an inner kind of view into what they were thinking about but framed in this environment that was so much about their identity and what they've chosen for their identity to be or what their kind of community has given them as their identity so um, it's a very different film in that it's non-narrative it's just snapshots of life around New York City um, and it, I think it gets to my interest in environments and in spaces that you also see in Midnight Family and in Santa Cruz del Lote, but it doesn't have the kind of narrative push of making a living or surviving Yeah, that's uh, that's what I noticed. It's yeah. a bit different, but I, I mean, I still see the connections. And I also, I, a bit of what I noticed in your work, I think that you've used everything that you've done in all these projects, and the combination of this is Midnight Family. Mm -hmm. uh, like, for example, the watching the microcosmos, like you, I think I, I heard saying that initially your intention was to put a lock to fix camera on, yeah, the, exactly. on the hood. It was very much building off of New York Cuts, this idea of trying to um, tell a story from a very restrained perspective. Um, and I wanted to try and do that in an ambulance and see how much I could kind of surprise the viewer by using just one shot but still giving them a whole experience and range of emotions. And with Midnight Family, it was too much of a limitation. I, I wasn't able to really capture the full range of emotions and experiences that I needed to to properly tell the story of this family. But um, it was a good place to start. Yes. Uh, I, I think now we can maybe move on to Midnight Family. Okay. I have some <laughs> specific questions about it. Uh, well, when I first read about... Uh, when I came across... Uh, this uh, film the first thing I thought of was uh, Scorsese is bringing out the dead okay uh, yeah. I still have not seen it but <laughs> you I, haven't seen I, it I need to yeah <laughs> I was just reading a review just now about the Irishman and it seems incredible so unrelated but <laughs> I, I mean I, I I guess there's many stories but that one just jumped to my mind and I actually saw a couple of scenes and I and maybe because you haven't seen it I didn't see because the aesthetic in your film I thought it was wonderful Thank But you. it's nothing like I've seen uh, replicated in other films. I think it's unique. Hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you if when you're thinking about approaching a subject, do you 
Do you get ideas of what has been made in narrative or in documentary film? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, I try to watch a lot of films and I try to really kind of, when something works for me, I try to hold on to it and remember it. Um, I think the unfortunate reality is that the more films I watch, the, the fewer times I really get totally immersed. It, no, changed by something. Like, uh. it, like it, when I was just starting out every week, I feel like I was seeing a film that was like really getting into my system. <laughs> And now it maybe happens every couple months. <laughs> um, but I watch lots of narrative films, lots of documentary films, and when I'm picking a subject matter, I try to think a lot about how that story will enable me to do something cinematic. So with the Achewa family, thinking about the ambulance and thinking about their routine, I, I knew it was something that I could make in a certain way. I knew there were, there, it was a story that would enable me to make certain decisions that a lot of true stories wouldn't, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, so it's, there's so many different things you need to think about when you're kind of deciding, is this a film to be made? And one of those for me at the very top of the list is what will the film look, feel, sound like? Um, that is kind of equal to who are the characters and what do they want. And I try to get both of those elements to um, work really well. Uh, I mean, I don't want to talk much about this because I already heard you saying a lot about how you came into contact with this story. Yeah. But I'm wondering, because you said you were initially in Mexico yeah. for another project. Uh, do you speak Spanish, I assume? Sí, sí, hablo español. Qué bueno. Because I, I guess that that's, uh, that's useful when you try to connect with your subjects. I mean, you also did a film in Colombia. Yeah. And then, so is this an area that you want to use your language skills to explore? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, learning a language just kind of enables you to connect with a whole different country or a whole different part of the world and Spanish for me has and has made me comfortable going to um, Mexico, going to Colombia and connecting with people there um, I think I was somehow encouraged with my first film to go to Colombia it was a really bold and honestly at the time kind of naive decision um, <laughs> how did that come I, I was in college and I had a Colombian friend um, who told me about this tiny island off the coast of Colombia that has 1200 people living on two and a half acres of land it's one of the most densely populated islands in the world and I was just like I saw an image of it and I was totally mesmerized and focused and I just had to go there and so I I did a Kickstarter and I raised the budget of the film without ever having gone there or having talked to these people to see if they were willing to let me in. And I, I kind of just showed up and um, spent two and a half months living there and they let me in. Um, but it was a risky move, but I think the, the process kind of convinced me and gave me the confidence that if you, if you put in the time and you do it in the right way, people will let you in, regardless if they're in your hometown or in 
Colombia or Mexico or you know Mississippi. Well, uh, like you know, I'm from Mexico, yeah. but I I had no idea about this story about uh, the ambulances. Yeah, uh, it was a, a shock to me because I. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about the film, <laughs> like uh, in terms of the questions that it raises. Yeah. And I want to ask you a bit about. You mentioned that when you, when you started uh, shooting with the with the Ochoa family, you got the story that it's now the end of the of the yeah. film. Yeah. And you wanted to build a, kind of like a context for the audience to understand. Uh, That moment. Yeah, that yeah, moment. Exactly. I, I understand that, but on the other hand, the ending is. Endings in general, uh, in storytelling, are sometimes what makes or breaks a, a work. Yeah. And for me, that was like devastating. I yeah. felt. Uh, I, I felt I couldn't recover from it. Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I'm, I'm wondering, and your personal perspective because you said you came into contact with this at the very beginning yeah how did this shape your thinking of the family and what your project was? yeah well I, I guess I don't really want to give the ending away but I'll <laughs> still yes. I'll still talk about the general idea was that I came into touch with this family and I would spend time in their ambulance and I would see them Um, saving people's lives and I would see them doing certain things that they needed to do to make ends meet um, and sometimes those things felt wrong to me um, but when taking a macro view and seeing the whole system at play it kind of made sense despite being a devastating um, situation and part of what I wanted to do with the film was to show people how kind of dark it could get while kind of giving you the toolkit and the experiences with this family to understand why. Um, not in an informational sense, but just in an emotional sense of connecting with this family and seeing them maybe cross a line, but, but kind of being there with them and not necessarily feeling like it's justified, but understanding that in the context that they live and survive, that's how things might end up. Yes, uh, I mean, um, I think that the film does a really good job in building and getting to know these characters. Um, for a, for the large largest portion of the first half of the film, mm -hmm. you get to see their interaction between them, yeah. their dreams. They yeah. they try to rationalize why they're doing this. Right. Uh, but I didn't see that. I thought it was very brief, that part. Was that intentional? Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it... In the first kind of quarter of the film, there's a few moments that I put in there that really, hopefully, give you enough to sink your teeth into these characters as people that you want to kind of spend time with and connect with. And um, there's not a lot of it because a film can only kind of support so much without the viewer wanting you to kind of move forward. And with Midnight Family, there's this really quick pace of accident after accident. And it was hard to squeeze in family moments 
between once the film really started going, it, it to squeeze in a family moment, kind of just like took away the energy from the film. Um, so I had to do it in the in the kind of like the first quarter, um, but it, it all kind of comes down to the original kind of idea of the film of wanting it to feel like kind of two or three nights with this family struggling to survive versus a much longer kind of two or three year journey where there are more family moments and um, you do kind of get to know the inner feelings of these people more. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I found that it was really refreshing to listen to the banter between them. Yeah. And the slang that they speak. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to me, it was funny. Like, I, I kept right. uh, laughing. When the film plays in Mexico, there's so much humor that comes out that people don't get outside of Mexico. <laughs> yes. And we tried so hard with the subtitles to get them right. Um, but there's just some Chilango slang, and the way that the family talks to each other is... is it's brilliant. It's, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was brilliant and really so refreshing because... I mean, I've lived here for so long that I, I have no contact with that uh, kind of language right. anymore. So I imagine that you <laughs> understand this kind of slang. Like it, it's yeah, I do. And I think it took me a little while to understand how special it was <laughs> in a way. But um, I definitely, when I was editing the film, like held on to that sort of stuff as much as, as, much as possible. The... The other thing that I, I saw that when you're building the, the story at the beginning, you you kind of see how like the whole family is acting, like they're in on, on this and they are playing their part. Uh, for example, one of the scenes that comes to mind is when they're they're gonna take uh, uh, this mother with her son and then to the hospital. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, it's full. They say that it's full and. Then they say, maybe we'll take you to this other one. Yeah. Uh, that's where they uh, fixed my leg. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, everyone exactly. is like, kind of like acting their part. Yeah. Uh, I really love those little instances. Is there, did you talk to them after, or do you know if these are real things, or they're just part of whatever thing they want to put for? Yeah, I mean, again. It's their business is at times a scheme, um, and that's kind of the central question of the film: is are they saving lives or are they kind of scamming people? And you see both kind of play out, um, especially in the scene that you're talking about, which I also don't really want to give away, but. Um, That's a big question that comes to mind. It's like, oh, I, I thought this family was really out there helping people, but this I feels... Think, I think that that's the first instance yeah, in the film that you... Really yeah, question yeah. them. Um, and you wonder if they're telling the truth. And then you kind of question everything else you've seen. And that feeling continues to kind of grow up until the ending, where it, it gets even more complicated. So um, there, there's definitely a feeling in Mexico City, in a city where everyone is kind of, you know, making ends meet in their own ways. Yeah. It's a city where... Everyone across... It, where every. 60% of Mexico works in an informal economy. So people that have just figured out how to make a life for themselves in a way that is um, entrepreneurial, uh, but also uh, 
outside of any sort of formal economic system. And that kind of builds this feeling across the city that I felt that there's a warmth to people, but there's also a flip side to that, which is this unnerving uh, feeling that people are sometimes in it for themselves and they're sometimes in it for uh, to, to help you and, and you never really know which one it is um, do, you, do you understand what I'm no I, I completely understand and I, I, I think that your film does a really good job in showing that because I am sympathetic for the for the characters and I think that for the largest portion of the film I was on their side and then something changed Yeah. Uh, even though, like when I was watching the story, I kind of assumed in my mind I was asking these questions: Is this like the best medical care they can provide? Right. I until I I saw some of the later scenes is when I started like feeling like, oh my god, like they're not just trying to make and what they are, but then this raises other questions. And then I think you also did a really incredible job of reflecting the corruption permeates everything yeah uh, I'm curious about how when people were accepting bribes how they were able you were able to shoot that um, it was the sort of thing where well it's, there were some police officers that I got to know quite well and that just were accepting or asking money from the Achoas so regularly and I was with the Achoas for such a long period of time that I just got to know them and street level corruption in Mexico City is something that is so present and so common that I it almost felt like these police officers didn't even feel the need to really hide it from me yeah that, um, that, that's that's what scares me a bit yeah that it's just it's, it's just normal. there and yeah. it's normal and it's the expectation and um it just happened i was filming and they did it and they knew i was filming and it was just kind of whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah um well by the way corruption is everywhere We're it is everywhere we're and here in the fifa hotel and Not so long ago, there was a big corruption scandal. Definitely, here. but, but what's different on the street street level? It has like real stakes. Hundred percent. And what I wanted to show with the film was how corruption from much higher levels in the government trickles down through this kind of ladder of victims to people's lives and death. It's it's not just about money. It's about people. Uh, who need the government and who don't get their services and their lives are on the line. I'm, I mean, but at least I think it's a bit... Uh, it shows hope that the film exists and I'm wondering what's the reaction from the authorities in Mexico. Um, the film has not yet been released commercially in Mexico. We've been playing festivals all around the country in Mexico City, Guadalajara, um, Guanajuato, Morelia. Um, but we're waiting until January when the film is going to be fully released to kind of start those conversations. Um, we're hoping to get health officials, to get government officials to show up and confront this, this reality. It's... 
it's interesting that when when I, when I was making it, I went and met with um, the people running Mexico City's government ambulance systems, and they are not um, hiding this information. They are fully aware that their services are inadequate, and they want more resources, but they don't have them. Um, so there was somebody who just gave me the numbers and gave me this whole presentation on how screwed up their system is. They're aware. And he was like, you know, this is the reality of what the government has been willing to do for me, and I'm trying my best to do what I can with it. Um, like, I have no idea, but what would be a rough number of ambulances to serve the, com the population, and what would, what would the number be? So there the, are 45. The government has less than 45. Yeah. Um, and then the private side, and that's for 9 million people, um, the private side is totally unregulated, so there's no way to know. Um, in the area of the city that I was working and filming in, there um, were probably 10 or 15 private ambulances, and that was just in three neighborhoods. Um, they tend to work in the wealthier parts of the city. To get paid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, I am wondering about how this whole ecosystem of the ambulances works. Do they... Are, we saw that they are friendly, at least with another one, and I assume that this is more widespread. Uh, but what is the composition of these ambulances? Are they also like family-run? Is it a business? They're, they're all different types of, of ambulances. Some are honestly run by a bunch of 15-year-old kids who should not be doing the work that they're doing. Uh, and some are run by really professional EMTs and some by families and some by couples and you see it all and they're they're mostly friendly. I think they understand that their business as an industry depends on their reputation being as clean as possible. And so they'll be really you know they'll definitely think twice between arguing about money in front of a patient or um, fighting over who gets to transport a patient. And so they'll chase each other and race to an accident in a really cutthroat way, but once they arrive... <laughs> Which that is dangerous in itself. Yeah, it is. Um, but once they arrive, they um, are pretty good about kind of backing off and, and letting whoever got there first do the work. There have been times when two ambulances show up and get in a physical fight over a patient. Um, And there are times when these ambulances don't don't get along, but for the most part, they were actually quite quite friendly. Uh, I guess that when you are an observer, uh, the fact that you are there alters the the reality. But I think that the fact that you were there for so for a period of three years, maybe you kind of blended into the I don't know, like in the yeah. I mean, the part of the kind of craft of observational filmmaking is to work and work and work to a place where your filming is not changing and not interfering um, the reality that you're trying to shoot. Um, I'm not going to say that it's possible for that ever to fully happen, but you can embed yourself in a way where um, you get close. And the closer you get, the stronger intimacy feels and the kind of more human the film will feel. So most of the work that I'm doing over the course of the shoot is is trying to get closer and closer to this family. Um, 
you said that there was an original, not a cut, but a, an original version yeah. of the film. And then you went back to shoot like, a, and it changed 70%. What were the differences between those two versions? So at the end of 2017, we had a locked picture of the film. And I started to submit it to festivals, and it just wasn't getting accepted anywhere. And so I pulled out submissions and decided to go and shoot for another two or three weeks just to see what would come of it. And as you said, I, I ended up shooting about 70% of the film in this one kind of 10-day period. And, and then you know, quickly was able to edit that into what has become the final film. And there's no interviews in the film. There's not even music. And so I was really relying on each observational scene to give you bits of information that you need to kind of understand this world. And in earlier cuts, I was getting really distracted with amazing scenes that didn't build on each other in a consistent way. And so the film was spread much thinner and you were seeing lots of different types of corruption and lots of different types of family moments and and it was giving you all the pieces you needed but they weren't weaved in a way that built towards a single cohesive feeling. Um, and the challenge of the final edit was to have every single scene contribute to the same idea of saving lives or scamming people and letting that all play out in the final accident. So you said that uh, you went to college, to Stanford, but you didn't uh, do filmmaking, so it was art. Yeah, I, I was always doing filmmaking, but it was my own thing. It was what I was doing on the side um, when I was studying um, film history, film theory, and art history. Um, which I think was a really good place for me to um, to start. I was engaging with really amazing works of art, and I was reading and watching and and learning the, and to spend your whole kind of college career thinking about the technical side of film. I think is a wasted opportunity sometimes that can be learned in the field or on set, but learning how to really think about filmmaking is a much harder thing to learn. Uh, but what I'm curious about is what's your connection to Stanford? I saw that they contributed something to the project. And then you also mentioned that uh, some of your professors provided advice for you to... So yeah. what's the connection there? Well, the connection is that I, that I went there and I connected with a lot of professors. And um, they, the university has a small fund for alumni... Um, arts project. So they were some of the first money into the project. They gave me a small grant to um, start shooting. Um, and there's a graduate school in documentary filmmaking, and I really got to know the professors there, and um, they have continued to be some of my closest mentors on, um, on all of my films. Um, so I think the film is great. Uh, you have any plans for any future projects that you can discuss? <laughs> yeah, I I'm really early in the stages of my next film, which is uh, basically when the, like a container ship or cruise ship wrecks and starts sinking. Um, there's only a really select group of engineers that fly in and solve the day. Uh, so we're following these 
deep sea divers and helicopter pilots and naval architects that um, fly around the world saving ships and stopping really big environmental disasters. Um, but we're very early on, and it, it will probably be a film that takes four or five years to. Well, and this film, you said that you were shooting for three years. When you're working on projects that uh, take uh, this long, do you work on other projects at the same time in parallel, or? I do. I mean, Last Chance You was something that I I did four seasons of that series while making Midnight Family, and um, with this next film, I'll I'll probably have you know many different balls in the air and trying to do some more commercial projects and some less commercial projects. Yeah. Um, another thing I was curious about is, I mean, I asked you a bit about the toll that it takes on the Ochoa family, for example, and you told me something about that, but I'm wondering about the toll it takes on you, hmm. personally. Is that something that, uh, do you uh, stay away from it, or how does it work? Um, The toll it takes on me, just filmmaking as a profession, or and also, I mean, dealing with this, uh, you're of course not trying not to interfere, yeah. but just like being there, like seeing yeah. this thing. And I'll tell you a story. Like I remember when I was in high school, we went to to a hospital in Guadalajara, and somehow someone died, and they brought it, brought him into the room. And I couldn't take it, so I went out of the room. And then the wife of the person who just died, because I was wearing a lab coat, assumed that I was a doctor, mm. and was asking me all these questions. Wow. I was, I guess, less than uh, 16, 17. Wow. At that point, I wanted to be a, a doctor, and that after that, I, I did not want to be a doctor anymore. Wow. Uh, and that's something that happened a long time ago, and I still remember it. Yeah. I mean, being in contact with this, does it have an effect? It does. Of course, it has an effect. It's it's um, spending a few years in an ambulance and seeing kind of this whole range of human trauma is definitely something that was and still continues to be really difficult to fully process. And I, I think I had the luxury of being kind of behind my camera, and when these things were happening, I was kind of distracted by the filmmaking and I wasn't in the Achawa's position where I was really interacting with these patients in a direct way but um, it, it, it was a totally kind of mind-wrenching experience that um, I'm still still processing well look thank you very much I yeah. appreciate your time it's a great powerful film and everyone should go and see it <laughs> great thank you so much thank you